From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house, ready to take your phone calls. Grab one of these open lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 Uh you can always send us an email that email address of course is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Getting ready for Holy Week, and like everybody else. Yeah, so speaking of that, um, Mm -hmm. as we look back, um, you know, it it amazes me, um, you know, as much about myself as anybody else, quite frankly, but just a cursory study of the Catholic faith at all, uh, the sacred scriptures at all. Um, you know, it, it is it is uh, it is intertwined beyond what would be capable for human intellect to conjure up in 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 you know, my opinion. And from the time uh, that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and even prior to that, from the time of their creation, the creator of the universe has really done nothing other than try to reveal himself to we pig-headed humans. <laughs> right. And we're about to <laughs> and and we're about to to uh you know in, in spite of all all of our rebellion a a foolproof plan for our salvation was orchestrated by that same creator and and we're bearing down on that four event event. Uh, the Triduum and Easter Sunday. That's true, you know, and uh, it's always been said that the Incarnation was known by the Father from all eternity, by the Son and the Holy Spirit, of course, as well, which means that the events that we'll celebrate next week were known, which meant that the creation and the fall of man, creatures given freedom, were known, and the reparation and rebuilding of the human race was known and finally the consummation and glorification of all of creation in particular the human race was known and foreseen in the mind of god and so not as our lord himself said not a a sparrow falls from the air but let yet the father knows it and so everything has been foreseen and yet, in our freedom, in our pig-headedness, as you mentioned, uh, we manage to muck it up quite regularly. 
And this Friday, this Thursday evening and Friday, is a reminder of the actual cost of the human race mucking things up. You know, the, the cost we tend to think of in terms of our human terms, oh, you know, I lost this or I didn't get that or somebody damaged me or killed, you know, if you're dead, you're dead, but uh, what, whatever it is, stole my stuff or whatever, we, we tend to think of it in those egocentric terms, but the real cost is celebrated on Good Friday. That's what our pig-headedness have brought the human race to, and on Sunday, we will celebrate how quickly, within three days, that cost was repaired and human nature was restored, and now we must simply surrender to the graces that he offers us for our own individual restoration and to do so for until the end of our life. So it's a tremendous mystery, but at the same time it is, as you say, you couldn't have thought it up. You know, all the ingenuity of Hollywood and, and Broadway could not have thought this up. Um, there could not have been more experiential proofs of it, uh, whether in the, the, the miracle of the resurrection or the miracles our Lord did in his lifetime or in the miracles done by the saints in their lifetime and after their lifetime in proof of their holiness. Uh, those that continue in places like Lourdes to this day. Uh, the mere existence of Christianity as the most, you know, along with the Jewish people, the most hated institution and people on the earth uh, and pursued by governments, persecuted by governments, put to death by government. And yet God has foreseen the reunion of these two people, the Christian people and the Jewish people, in the glory which will be seen and come about towards the end of the world. So all foreseen, all, all demonstrated by the way history has, has unraveled, uh, and it's, it's, it's an unimaginable tapestry representing the providence of God and his lordship of history. You know, um, in, in my, I felt like I was given a great gift, and I think that gift is there for anybody who's willing to accept it. But as I was, you know, making my way from evangelical Protestantism uh, to the Catholic Church, you know, I, I really wasn't, personally myself, I wasn't seeking out the Catholic Church. I was seeking to unify my household, really, yeah. more, more than anything else. And a good deal of Jack's ego still involved, but that'll <laughs> eventually go away. <laughs> in fire. <laughs> well, if if per, if, per, per, if not fire. preceded by yeah, holiness, yes. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, but the um, uh, you know I reached a point when I, while I didn't have all of the answers, there was a mm -hmm. tipping point when I realized that I had enough of the answers to be supremely confident that if anything came up down the road that I needed an answer for, you know, I reached a point where I was confident that Holy Mother Church would provide that answer for me. And if we were to take that attitude into the way we approached, uh, you know, a lot of things, I think we would be a whole lot better off, and I think that the world would be a lot closer um, to where it needed to be um, if we would just humble ourselves to just a small degree and there was a larger point that this was the preface to that has completely eluded me. 
in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't I stop t- talking go. and yes. you, it may come to you. Um, you know, I, I think on this element of what is being pursued there, nobody says, well, I'm pursuing becoming a Catholic. You start out, I, I think you start out like, uh, I think for me is the great example of this, of a non-Catholic who worked her way to the church, Edith Stein. Uh, raised in an Orthodox Jewish home with all of the bells and whistles. Yeah, I'm that confused is for her quite often. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. But she lost her faith, as many teenagers do, but she went to college and she wanted to learn about truth. And, you know, in, in many, many cultures, in many university settings, the study of philosophy, uh, it doesn't have this cachet anymore, although we have the doctor, you know, the the PhD is a doctor of philosophy, but it's usually in something other than the discipline of philosophy. But she wanted to study that and became the first woman to do that and get a doctorate in Germany. But she writes in her autobiography, she was looking for the truth. We're made for truth and goodness. And we may not see where the truth is leading us, but if we're seeking the truth, he who is truth will certainly accompany us, and eventually we will find him. And I think that's how a lot of people come to the church from outside Christianity, from within the non-Catholic world of Christianity, is because if they have a love of the truth and they pursue it with honesty of conscience, it can only lead one place. If outside Christianity can only lead to Christ— Inside Christianity can only lead to the church. And I think her example is a great witness of that value which you enunciated as well, that you didn't we weren't seeking the church. You were seeking an answers. And the answer, of course, answers are truth. You're looking for the truth. And she did that. And it brought her to the church, it brought her to the religious life, and it brought her to martyrdom at Auschwitz. But I think Uh, That's in accordance with our nature. We are made to know the truth and to love the good. And you need to know the truth to know what is really good. Our world is mixed up on those things today. But uh, in seeking the truth, you will find it. You will find him. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's open fri- uh, open line Friday, rather, talking theology with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You can rely on CNA to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, and they do it a much better job of it than I do of talking right now, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. For the latest news, visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News, and you can get timely news updates directly to your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click 
on subscribe. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. I have an email from Mark in Spokane, Washington, and he says, Dear Colin, uh, this we, we, you, you touched on this in a, in a general sense uh, at the beginning of the program. Did Jesus, who is eternal, know that when God created the universe in time, he would be born incarnate and suffer crucifixion and death on a cross? Certainly the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and it, it's assumed because of the nature of the apostatic union, the union of the, person, the two natures in the person, second person of the word, that oh, even from the moment of his conception, he knew his mission, he knew who he was. It was a popular thing in the 70s for people to say, well, Jesus, you know, he learned, he grew in grace and wisdom. Scripture tells us that, therefore, he didn't know who he was, he didn't know what his, when did he know, and all of that. The church has always asserted in the common theology of the church that no, uh, just as the the saints and mystics have infused knowledge, uh, even some of them, Padre Pio was, I think, as young as three years old when he started having uh, mystical experiences, <coughs> that all of the gifts that any of the great saints have are exceeded in the gifts that even on the human level that uh, would have been possessed by Our Lady and exceedingly and infinitely by Christ. And one of those things would certainly know who he was and what his mission was. <coughs> that doesn't mean that in his human, uh, you know, human consciousness he was at all times thinking of all things, you know, the theory of relativity or something like this. But uh, in the divine knowledge, this was certainly nothing that he did not know. Um, and so there is always going to be that question of, in what way did that human intellect enlightened regarding the, you know, regarding the any particular matter? Well, what do we do? We reflect on something that we know. And so in his reflection, he would have known what he needed to know, what he wanted to know at any particular moment. All of the other history questions of history and science and things that he might have expounded upon or the languages were not a case of necessity, even though he could have done any of those things uh, from the divine knowledge. Uh, but like us, humanly speaking, he had to reflect and then speak. So uh, he certainly did know who he was. He certainly did know from the very instant of his conception. Um, we got an email from uh, Gerardo, who is a first-time uh, emailer to the to the program. He has several questions here. I'm going to limit it to one. When does Lent begin, and when can I eat candy again? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. Uh, it's 40 days, although the, the church in the calendar today fudges a little bit on the 40 days because it is carved out uh, from the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Thursday, Holy Thursday, to... Uh, the Easter Vigil, and, and inclusive of Easter Sunday, of course, as a triduum, a special celebration of the high, the highest feast day. liturgical season of the year. Uh, yes, essentially. Uh, in a broader sense, everything up to the Easter Vigil is Lent. Uh, but in that sense of the what the calendar now asserts, the Lent, those 
those special feast days are carved out as having their own character. Uh, as regard to when you can eat candy and things like that, it has generally been uh, said that on uh, the Sundays of, of Lent, you may take a rest from your penances. If you so choose, uh, it probably would be quite meritorious not to take a rest until Lent is, is actually over. But Lent is over with the Easter Vigil, the, with the, uh, the first Mass of, uh, of Easter, which is that Mass. Um, in some places there will be an anticipated Mass. That too would count just as we celebrate uh, Sundays beginning with the anticipated Mass or Vigil Mass of Sunday. Uh, and that would be the end point as well. Uh, it's always good, however, and this is something in the seminary we used to do, and that is we would have the Easter we would have the Easter vigil and then the feast. So you could make it, well, the Mass that I go to in celebration of Easter will, in my case, end my fasting because my feasting, my fasting will now give way to the feasting. That would also be an option. But none of, none of these particular ways are mandated by the church. So <clears throat> every Sunday is a feast day, right? Yes. So are you disobedient if you choose to keep your fast on Sunday instead of feasting? I, th I, I think follow, follow the church. You know, we're told to follow the silence. Science will follow the church. So Sunday is a day of feasting. I think you can feast, and certainly on Easter Sunday. That didn't answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, what answer would you give to that question? Um, I... I don't really know, to be honest with you. I struggle with it a little bit. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be legalistic in any direction, but... That's the danger, um, actually, yes. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, if you're supposed to feast, you should feast. And if you right. continue your penances on those Sundays during Lent, then are you being disobedient? That was the question. Well, since the church doesn't mandate that you not, then the answer would be, in a technical sense, no, because it would be legalistic to make something more more of a law than the law itself prescribes. Uh, and the other element to that is all of these choices are voluntary, uh, so you don't you don't need the church's permission not to to satisfy them in some respect. So from the again from the legal point of view, you don't. Uh, I think the thing to do would be to establish what it is you're going to do for Lent at the beginning of Lent and then stick to that. That would be a, a consistent policy for the individual. My advice is just make sure you go to Mass. That would be the most important <laughs> of all in celebrated Easter. Gil writes in, how would you explain the passage in 1 Corinthians that says bishops should be married? The Church was coming into a world which practically did not conceive of the idea of celibacy. If celibacy had been an obligation of uh, the first priests or even of the apostles, there would have been zero priests. Among the Jews themselves, it was said by the rabbis, if a man uh, reaches to the age of maturity, about 20 in their mind, and wasn't married, he was only half a man. In other words, married was the normal state of, uh, of affairs. Also because Israel was meant to propagate itself, and you have children meant the Messiah, your, at least from your male children, the Messiah would come sooner, or at least the possibility of your, uh, one of your male sons uh, uh, having, that, having that office. Uh, 
So all of the pressures were in terms of uh, being married. The rabbis, Gamaliel, for example, set an example of celibacy. And by that, he, uh, he established that, that his disciples would marry the Torah. This was the idea. Be married to the Word of God. Be married to the study of God. And this would be an all-consuming thing. Uh, that's never been universal in Judaism, even in the most orthodox branches, I do not believe. But uh, at least we know from St. Paul's boast and what is known of him uh, that uh, he himself was celibate. And he speaks of that, of course, in the letters uh, to Corinthians as well. So you have this, uh, this view. You also have what Christ established, and that is that some were eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So here is a counsel from Christ, like the counsel to the rich young man to, you know, give up everything and follow me. He didn't say you couldn't be a Christian if you couldn't marry, you know, give up everything. And he didn't say that if you weren't a eunuch for the kingdom of God, you couldn't be my, his disciple either. He said some would be, would do this. And so the church, uh, especially in the monasteries, the monastic life is a solitary life, uh, even lived in community, but was among the Desert Fathers. It was very often like quite literally the hermetical life, a single life in the, in the world, in the desert rather. And so all of that developed rather gradually, this changing over to this complete attention to God and to holy things. And so... In the early church, the bishops, the priests, were taken from among Jewish men, most of whom would have been married, if not all. But they should not be men who were married, divorced, and remarried. And so this was the, this was the guidance coming from Paul then. Once married men. Not that, oh, we no single men need apply. The Apostle John as far as we know, single. The Apostle Peter, his brother, or not his brother, James's brother, Andrew's brother, but the Apostle Peter married two different apostles chosen by Christ, selected by Christ. And so this was the guidance to the early church. And in time, the judgment in the Western church uh, already in the early centuries was that the charism of celibacy was a particular sign of the call to the priesthood. Um, that was not the case so much in the East, although among the monks that was certainly the case. And so it developed differently West and East. But in, uh, in the West, it was taken as the, uh, as the as sign sine qua non, without which there is no greater one, that this was evidence of a call to the priesthood that one could live this life of dedication to total dedication to Christ and to his bride, the church, uh, as a eunuch in view of the kingdom of heaven. So that's how it developed uh, in the course of history, by the very nature of history as it unfolded. We're just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house, ready to take your phone calls. Just pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. That number is 
1-888-346-9368. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985 you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com it's open line friday with colin donovan This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out today to a couple of members of the EWTN Radio family, Mississippi Catholic Radio in Jackson, Mississippi, celebrating their seventh year with us on the air this week, and St. Therese Catholic Church in Canton, Texas, marks five years as an EWTN affiliate with four stations in English and Spanish um, in Texas. Congratulations to Roger Venable in Jackson, Mississippi, and Ken Mings in Canton, Texas, from your friends here at EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833 288 3986. We head first to the great state of Indiana. Kay is a first time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kay, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you. Um, I am a fairly new convert to Catholicism, and it was just the best thing I've ever done in my life. I'm in my 70s now and was married for many, many years, but I'm a widow. But um, when I was reading about purgatory and I was trying to get my act cleaned up here at my age, mm-hmm. and I wondered, in my early years, um, there were some things that were not morally upstanding before my marriage um, that I did, that, and I didn't know when I go to confession, do I need to enumerate each one, or can I go in and just say, here's a blanket confession, I was not very good about mm-hmm. <laughs> some things sure. when I was yeah. a lot younger. Yeah. Uh, did you come into the church by way of being uh, just confirmed and receiving the Holy Eucharist, or were you also baptized? And if so, how long ago? I was baptized as an infant. Okay. I'm in my 70s. Okay. Um, and so I came in through confirmation, and I'll tell you, it is just, mm-hmm. oh man, it's just yeah. the best thing I've ever done in my life. Well, if it had been by baptism recently, you'd be free and clear. <laughs> so, but... Um, what Jesus told the apostles uh, in giving them the power to forgive or retain requires that we say those things which uh, offended God, serious sin. Uh, venial sin, of course, is a departure from the straight and narrow in some sense. You're, you're not on target, but it's not grave enough, or it's your, you know, intention was not to do something evil, uh, or the circumstances, uh, habits of youth and so on might have uh, played into somehow, can reduce culpability. So all of these reasons, those kinds of venial sins don't have to be confessed. So what the successors of the apostles and the priests who assist them in their ministry need to know is that which separates us from God. 
grave sins. So what the church classifies as mortal sin, and in number and in kind. Uh, the kind would be if you take a run down the Ten Commandments, each of those ten is a kind of sin, a particular kind of sin. And you can break that down further into more specifics based on the details of, of that. Uh, obviously, in sexual sin, there's usually a, a variety of ki- different kinds enumerated and so on. Uh, we distinguish between slander and libel and gossip and all of these things, even in common speech. So there's violations of the seventh commandment, but of different characters. So the priest would want to know what it's sin you did, its character, and how many times you did it. Now, with things done long ago, obviously there are limits to our our memory and so on. In the examination of conscience, you do as good a job of examining and settling on those things as you can, and then you not worry about it. The failures of the me- of memory to remember all the instances or to be able to you say, well, you know, I as a kid, I stole from my parents on 15 occasions, and I, as an adult, I did this on 77 times. Or, No, not that kind of detail. And if all you can say is, I did it so many times I can't count, I think he's going to get the idea. So do the best job you can without over greater, uh, too much scrupulosity or concern about uh, that level of detail. The only details that is needed into a confession, say, for example, something that changed the character of the sin. So the church would distinguish, well, you know, I, 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 I murdered somebody who angered me on the street and I shot them. Or I deliberately went in and I shot the bishop and killed him. The bishop is a category of person the church considers as a sacred person, consecrated. That's a different category. So things that distinguish uh, the category of sin, thereby changing their gravity as well. But again, you're limited by what your memory and your ability to do a good examination of conscience. And the Lord and the church is looking for your sincerity in doing that, not that you have a, an accountant's familiarity with all of the, the details and the frequency. Does that help, Kay? It really does. The sincerity part, you know, that's the part that, you know, in my heart. And I've become a totally different person since I've gotten into this church and realizing, you know, what a blessing it is. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I want to do some spring cleaning at my <laughs> age and make sure that I can, uh, you know, stand before him. Um, in an honorable state. But so thank you so yeah. much for all you guys do. And, and I, w- I would say, too, as well, if you've been to confession since you came into the church or this is your first one, you're basically looking at a general confession is what it would be called. Um, and so all all of those things I said apply in, in those cases, more so even in the general confession of the whole life because, you know, who remembers what they did everything they did when they were 15 or 16 or something like that, uh, or even 25. And as you get older, I'm up there with you or pretty close behind you, and uh, it gets harder every day. (laughs) 
I'm not sure everybody has quite as much to uh, suppress as you do, Colin. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence, Jack. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Stephen, a first-time caller in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Stephen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. How are you? Oh, pretty good, Stephen. What's your question today? So, is it it, would it be a sin for me to delay becoming a Catholic? Um, because my girlfriend is a, she's an Orthodox Christian, and she's not really about the whole Catholic thing, but I've definitely felt called to go that direction in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it starts with, I would be honest with her about that, and you can certainly talk through this together. I would say you can no more tell her she has to become a Catholic. Uh, she's following a, an apostolic way of life that goes back to the church of the first millennium when we had the unity that the Lord willed. So she's following her conscience, and she should be very happy that you're prepared to follow yours, even if it means some disagreement on the conclusion. So I think it's worth an honest talk with her. And, uh, you know, not, first of all, not presuming how she would react. And maybe if she reacts in a wholly wrong, you know, uh, inconsiderate way, it may give you other things to think about than just what, whether to enter the church right now. But I think the main thing is that you are obliged for you and must follow your conscience as she is for herself and should follow her conscience and with God's help, uh, maybe you will, you know, share the same faith at some point. Of course, I would say that would be in the Catholic Church with Peter. But whatever the Lord provides in that respect, I think that the two of you do what you believe to be right is a very important consideration. And it will be a much more stable basis of marriage than getting married with maybe some re resentment, for example, that might accumulate over not being able to do what you wanted to do. I think you bring that out in the open and you you talk honestly with each other about it and respect each other over it. God bless you, Stephen. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We head next to the great state of Michigan. Kathy is a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kathy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. I just wanted to add something to the lady that you spoke with just a short time ago mm -hmm. uh, in her 70s, and I'm also in my 70s. And, you know, you get towards the end of your life, and you don't want to die with mortal sin on your soul, and I didn't mm -hmm. lead the most exemplary life when I was younger either. And I went to confession recently and told the priest, I, I'm not sure if I've confessed these sins, and... Um, he kind of got mad at me um, because he said, if you've gone to confession, then your sins are forgiven. And he was just a little bit abrupt with me about it. And mm -hmm. that's the one thing about going to confession nowadays. You have a mixed bag of priests. And I see why people are afraid to go to confession, because it's not always a kind priest. And I was kind of let down. I was... I just wanted sure. him to be mm -hmm. a little yeah. kinder about it and 
say, well, what do you think you forgot, you know, or <laughs> something like <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, first off, I'll, I'll say that um, I doubt that our era is any different than any other era of the church in terms of personalities and temperaments uh, you meet in priests. Uh, it's it's hum- the same human nature we all share. So I wouldn't let that bother you too much. Uh, I, I think maybe he presumes that you, you know more about the church's understanding of this than you do. Uh, as I explained to her, you make your best effort to remember what it is, and you made your confession, and anything that you forgot is absolved even though you couldn't remember it or, you know, in the fog of memory you don't know. It's not necessary to say, well, I think I did X, Y, and Z. No, it's the things you know you did X, Y, and Z, and as many times as you know you did them or thereabouts. So you don't have to, you know, beat yourself up over not remembering those kinds of details when it's simply you can't remember those. It's too too far gone. So that that's what he expected you to know, and I don't even know that there are many Catholics who really understand that, uh, that the Lord's forgiveness extends even to those sins. Now, there is a caveat to that, and that is our Lord in the precepts, which he said, who sins you felt forgive, they are forgiven, and in commanding the sacrament of reconciliation, it also implicitly includes our obligation to bring up sins that we know we commit. So let's say you've been to confession, and then, you know, you go out, out into the parking lot, and you say, oh, I forgot to mention that, and it was a mortal sin, and, uh, you know, you have to run back in and get in line and go through it. No, you're absolved. But whether you remember it in the parking lot or the following week or the following month or the following year, because Christ commanded that the priest know what sins you committed, you are still forgiven it, but you have this precept to fulfill, to obey Christ. And so we do it out obedience uh, to that. So it doesn't change the absolution, but you just, you know, you, you mention it in a future confession, something that you remembered that you did with some certitude, not with, vague, oh, I think I did that. No, it has to be what you did, what you remember doing with certitude. Other than that, you trust in the, in the mercy of God. And even that trust in the mercy of God because you're still forgiven. You don't have to go back. You just want to satisfy what the church uh, teaches, Christ intended, the oral confession of sins to one of his ministers who then decides your sincerity and either for uh, grants you absolution or says, no, you're not sincere. Come back when you're sincere. I'm not absolving you. That's what that is intended to do. But you, there's no such a situation in the case you cite. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I'd like to invite you to join us for EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. There's a bill in Delaware that threatens the priestly seal of confession. They'll talk about how this could Im- impact the sacrament, plus the why of the Fish Fry Friday. 
and a look at the church's tradition of fasting during Lent. That's all on EWTN News In-Depth tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Judy is in New Mexico, a first-time caller listening on the EWTN app. Judy, you're on with Colin Donovan. I, um, I had a friend that sent me a link yesterday to this Dr. Jeremiah um, on um, the rapture and the thousand years. And, of course, she was rattling all of this memorized um, Bible verses, and I studied the Bible quite a bit. But um, so can you explain the rapture? I know you've done it a thousand times. I've even had your eschaton series videotape mm-hmm. years ago when you provided that. Oh, sure, with Desmond um, Birch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. But um, the thousand years and um, the rapture, and of course he's relating that this particular um, person, Dr. Jeremiah, very popular, um, back Easter sure. somewhere, yeah. um, to... Um, to uh, Ukraine and Russia and all of that, you know how the Protestants mm-hmm. are really, I mean, a lot of them are yeah. really taking all of this literally. And um, he was sort of criticizing people like us that don't take um, it literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted your, um, well, I wanted sure. Oh. <laughs> yeah, then he's criticizing St. Augustine and a whole other people who came along up to, uh, you know, up until about the 1800 or so, uh, who didn't take it literally, who understood it as the... Cl- they didn't probably know this in the academic sense, but we now say that this is Jewish apocalyptic literature. Uh, it, it's a style of writing in, in literature meant to convey uh, through symbols and signs uh, the truth. Uh, and so it was uh, not uncommon in the period or before the coming of Christ uh, it represents that in uh, in the case of uh, John as well, the book of Revelation. And so th- I think in the early days it's quite clear that there was some confusion when the Lord's return was. And so these arguments were going on. We see them being referred to in the sacred scripture, you know, is the Lord returning imminently? That could not have been the case if there was a thousand years that was understood as waiting for the Lord to come. So by the end of the first century, the last of the apostles, uh, he has this vision and he's explaining just exactly what was meant there. And that is the battle, the historical battle that will take place between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Now the first mistake that this view makes is regards the coming of Christ. In most cases, they have Christ coming at the beginning of the thousand years of, of the millennium, coming and ruling upon the earth. Well, he's in a resurrected body. Uh, he's in heaven. Heaven is his kingdom. Why would he be coming and ruling upon the earth? So, no, he's not going to do that, and the church has never understood this to be the case. So how has the church understood that thousand years? In Jewish, this kind of literature, numbers have meaning, and this is still true in, if you, in some of the writings of the rabbis. You see this kind of a sacred numerology where 
For instance, seven is a sign of the, the perfection of something. Seven days of the week, that would be where they got that from. So the number seven somehow re- makes reference to the perfect. The number of thousand, the number a thousand years, uh, a millennium, we would say today, uh, this was just being a great long span of time. They wouldn't have any concept of the length of time as we do today is something far out in the future. And so the church has understood that since at least the fourth century as the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And then you see the, the Antichrists that are, appear at different, play, different times in history that our Lord said there would be many of them. You know, the, the Roman Antichrist, the early church readily understood that as the political power of the Romans, just as the Jews understood Bab- Babylonians as, as, they didn't call it the Antichrist, but they, re- they understood that kind of anti-God power and authority in an earthly kingdom. In fact, we have St. Peter even referring to writing from Babylon as a way of speaking of, I'm in Rome, saying I'm in Rome. He wasn't in, in uh, Iran, he was in Rome. I'm writing from Babylon. So all of this is understood in the early church, and that got finally settled by Augustine, and we have now we have been living in the thousand years. So what happens at the end of the thousand years? Christ returns. He returns, as the Creed has said, for 1,700 years. Well, actually, older than that, if you go back to the baptismal creeds of Rome in the second century and uh, Ethiopia and other places, that when people were baptized, they had to profess uh, a belief in, in God and so on, Trinity and Christ and so on. He will come at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, not to set up a kingdom, not to rapture people out of the suffering of the final days so he can insert them back in in glorified bodies and rule with them. Uh, That's a misunderstanding of what is meant by the first resurrection. The first resurrection is baptism. What first takes us out of this deadly corruption of our nature, it's baptism. The second resurrection is spiritualizes us in the same way that the resurrection uh, obviously did, did to Christ. It gave a spiritual body, a resurrected body. So that's the way the church understands it. And then when we see references to the people being seized up, that's where rapture comes from, to go with Christ, it's referring to those who are alive at the end of time when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, being taken to the Lord and having no advantage in the resurrection to those who had died in the many years, uh, at least 2,000 we know of, uh, that have died since the Lord was here. And so, all, all the saints will be together with Christ, and then the punishment upon evil will take place, the consummation of, of, the, of, the, of the universe and a new heavens and a new earth. So this is a rather new theology, mostly from the last 180 to 200 years. Uh, this has not been held by any church east and west in all of, of uh, church history. Uh, neither in the Orthodox churches uh, or in the Roman church has it been held that we are raptured out of the suffering of the end times because of our 
I don't know, our latent goodness, because it's pretty latent if, if that's the case. Uh, but it goes well with a once-saved, always-saved theology that basically you're in the palm of the Lord and you can't ever get out of it by even committing a grave sin. So the theology hangs together from their point of view. Unfortunately, it was invented within the last two centuries, and it doesn't represent the continuous belief east and west of the church that Christ will return at the end of history, the end of time, to judge the living and the dead, and at that point, the universe will be transformed and obviously man, mankind with it. Some to reward, the reward of the sheep, some to punishment, the reward of the goats, or the reward of the tares, if you like the fire imagery. But in either way, it's, it's quite clear to most Christians, the majority of whom are Catholic and Orthodox, but it is a little viewpoint that's out there, and it seems like about every 20 years uh, the Lord's return is imminent. I think this will be the third or fourth time that a big hullabaloo like you've described has been made in my lifetime. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen in this one either. We're going to get through this, and as Our Lady promised, uh, eventually the Lord will return, and, and that will be that. And uh, we just got about a minute and a half left, Colin, and James in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio, wants to know if it's okay to write the sins down and give them to the priest instead of saying them. Uh, unless you are incapable of speech, no. That would be required by necessity. You could have an interpreter in there if you don't speak the language. By necessity, you could write them down. But no, not ordinarily. That's, that's not permitted. And Roseanne in Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130, asks, How efficacious are the masses from communities that you get sent mail from where there are thousands of other people? Well, the mass is the mass is the mass, and everyone is efficacious. So uh, uh, bring your devotion to that offering, and uh, the Lord, we hope, will be merciful. On behalf of our host, our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday. We hope you have a tremendous weekend. Enjoy Palm Sunday, and if you need to go to confession, go this weekend so you can enter into the Triduum with a clean conscience. Um, We'll get together again Monday and start it all over again with Father John Tregilio. Until then, God bless.